I thank you for your all too generous introduction. Madam Cartel, President, Acting President Blackburn, Chaplain Young, Mr. and Mrs. Beach, my host and hostess, faculty and students, ladies and gentlemen, I have a long acquaintance with Duke reaching back to the days of Frank Graham as president of the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. I'd heard about the mighty works that Duke University was doing in academia. But this is the first time I have spoken here since I became an honorary graduate of Duke. So you see, I'm, I am one of you, no stranger. I worked with Frank Graham on many fronts in our effort to improve black-white relations in the United States. While President of Morehouse, I was honored to confer an honorary degree upon a truly great Southerner who had earned the right to be so honored. So it should be clear that my roots are interlocked, interwoven, and intertwined into the soil of Duke University. I feel at home here. Let me supplement and compliment the scripture read to you, hopefully, that the poem by Elizabeth Cheney will bring meaning to what I shall attempt to say. This is the poem. Whenever there is silence around me, by day and by night, I'm startled by a cry. It came from the cross. The first time I heard it, I went out and searched and found the man in the throes of crucifixion. And I said, I'll take you down. And I tried to take the nails out of his feet. But he said, let them be. For I cannot be taken down 
until every man, every woman, and every child come together to take me down. And I said, but I cannot hear you cry. What can I do? And he said, go about the world. Tell everyone that you meet. There is a man on the cross. There's a man on the cross. Let me use as a basis for this talk the second 200 years. The words of the prophet Jeremiah are appropriate. Jeremiah was called of God to prophesy. Jeremiah tried to convince God that he needed a man who could speak well person alive and, and eloquent. He told God that he was a mere child in the art of public speaking. Jeremiah tells this story in the first chapter of Jeremiah. Let me quote him. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. And I ordained thee a prophet under the nation. Then said I, Ah, oh, Lord God, I cannot speak, for I am a child. But the Lord said unto me, Say not that I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hands and touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. See, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms. Root out, pull down, to build, and to plant. A prophet is a unique person. Call of God to do his thing in his time. 
Good speed in the story of the Old Testament defined the prophet. A prophet is one who interprets the will of God to man. God calls a man to prophesy to the people in his time. Such question as, is the time ripe or right for me to prophesy? Will it be physically safe for me to declare God's word? Will the people repent? Heed my words and change from their wicked ways? Will governments, officials repent and call upon their people to do likewise? None of these questions are relevant. The prophet does not debate them. He speaks to the people in his time because he has to. He must. He's under divine orders to prophesy. He has no choice. When God called Jeremiah, he described the experience as being so urgent, so compelling, so demanding that it was like a, a burning fire shut up in his bones. If you can imagine a roaring fire or a flame of fire burning in your bones, you can understand the urgency of the call. It is similar in Isaiah's call. He declared that when the eternal God speaks, who can but prophesy? Micah declared that God requires three things. He has showed thee, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? Micah did demonstrate the timelessness of prophecy. These words are relevant for all times. The words of Micah are symbolic of the fact and nothing is bad, is merely bad because it is old and all that is new is not necessarily good. Jesus entered the ministry on the divine compulsion and inner urge that drove him on. He tells us in the fourth chapter of Luke that he entered the ministry by quoting Isaiah. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to proclaim 
the acceptable year of the Lord. But we do not have to go back 26 centuries to prove the effectiveness of prophecy. There are numerous modern examples in the historical knowledge of many of us here today. We know that Lincoln must have been called of God to save the Union and incidentally to free the slaves. But we know from Fred Douglas' own words that he was called by God to use his feet to run away to freedom. Harriet Beecher Stowe was inspired to write Uncle Tom's Cabin, believed by many to be the book that precipitated the Civil War, thus freeing four million slaves predicted by many to soon die out because of the biological belief of many at that time that the Negro could not survive in a white man's world, which would result in the solution of the race problem very soon. It was the belief that the black man would die out, trying to meet the competition in a white man's world. Disappointingly, the black man did not die out, but instead he multiplied from four million to 25 million. William Lloyd Garrison was a great abolitionist, but Fred Douglas was greater. He came from slavery farther down the scale. Garrison never had to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, the stigma of being black. Garrison, being white, was expected to succeed in freedom, but not a black slave. I thank God for Harriet Beecher Stowe a great civil rights leader. But I adore more Harriet Tubman, who called, who, who God, whom God called to free 300 slaves by the way of the Underground Railroad to Canada. These this brings me to the heart of the sermon today. The challenge to America and to the black man. In this in our centennial year. America includes the black man in all of his historical documents. But it is hardly likely that white America would take the kind of initiative that is needed at this particular time in history. I'm convinced that God meant that the initiative 
in our bicentennial year should, should be and must be taken by blacks. I'm not comfortable in saying this. In fact, it gives me inward pain to say it. But it is a fact that there has been no voluntary effort taken by white America to make the black man a citizen of the United States with, with full equity in his quest to achieve full citizenship rights. We know that as fine a man as Lincoln was, he had no such intention when he issued his Emancipation Proclamation, January 1, 1863. He clearly stated that his sole purpose was to save the Union with or without slavery. The freedom of the slaves was incidental. In his speech in Peoria, Illinois, Lincoln said, we cannot make the Negro equal. There is no doubt in my mind Lincoln meant what he said in that debate with Stephen Douglas. He meant what he said because it was under, it was never in Lincoln's mind that the black man would be capable of full citizenship rights. I say this because immediately after the debate with Douglas, Lincoln was making plans to send a black man to Africa even before the emancipated slaves had never been to Africa, the home of their ancestors. Some black people sharing Mr. Lincoln's vision got on Lincoln's African bandwagon. The black man was brainwashed in accepting Lincoln's views because they too did not believe that the black man had the courage and ability to survive in a world that had never planned that the Negro should be participant in a world that had never accepted him as a free man. Carrying out this conviction, a group of Negroes received plenty of help from people who wished them well in Liberia, but not well as a free man in the United States long as federal soldiers from, the, from emancipation up to the Hayes-Tilton Compromise occupied the South, the Negroes' rights were protected. The election of 1876 was so close that the choice of president had to be chosen by Congress, and the House of Representatives chose Hayes with the provision that the North would leave the black man in the hands of the white South. 
From that time on up to around 1910, the South, through various illegal methods, had stripped the black man of all the rights that the Constitution had given him. The ballot was taken away. The 13th Amendment, which freed the Negro, was taken away. The 14th Amendment, guaranteeing the equal protection of the law, was nullified. The ballot was denied through illegal means such as the white primary, fear, intimidation, and frequently lynching. Although churches enacted the Voting Rights Act of 1875, the Supreme Court in 1883 overthrew congressional law thus giving sanction and approval to segregation, denying safety of life, person, and property rights. Mention was established in state law through the white primary, poll tax law, fear, and intimidation. These restrictions took away the ballot. The states made the segregation laws making it possible for all 13 of the original states to have laws approving segregation in every crack and crevice throughout the South. Segregation soon became law. Segregation became God. And for a black man, the tamper with that sacred law meant jail, beastly whipping, and death. It was as sacred as India's sacred cow. The states encouraged lynching under the hypocritical pretense of protecting white womanhood. Ben Tillman, the arch enemy of civil rights was invited to speak in the North and in the South before church groups in civic bodies and in social and civic groups. He took a Boston, he told a Boston audience speaking at Tremont Temple in Boston that he would encourage lynching. He told them that he would lynch any Negro who raped a, a white woman. The following statistics in this case, however, prove that Tillman had not done his homework. Out of 46,717 lynchings in the country, from 1885 to 1946, only 19% were ever accused of raping white women. Henry Grady, one of the most widely known and respected Southerners in his day, condoned lynching. Speaking before the New England Society in Boston, Tremont Temple, Grady praised the black man. He referred to the Negroes' loyalty to the women and children of the South during 
the four years of the Civil War when the black man's masters were fighting to keep him in slavery. Though a slave, the Negro was loyal. Grady continues when, it, uh, continues when at last he raised his black humble hands that the shackless might be cut off those chains, the Negro remained loyal. How ironical, how paradoxical. Grady, speaking a year later in Dallas, Texas, he repudiated all that he said in, in Boston and in the New York Times on May the 10th, 1900. Let me quote Grady verbatim. Those who would put the Negro back in supremacy would, would work against infallible decree. For the white race can never submit to the domination because the white race is the superior race. But the frequency, but the supremacy of the white man in the South must be maintained forever. And the domination of the Negro race resisted at all points and all hazards. Because the white race is the superior race, this is the declaration of no new truth. It has abided forever in the marrows of our bones and shall run forever with the blood that feeds Anglo-Saxon hearts, reaching his peroration, Grady said further, standing in the presence of this multitude, sobered with the responsibility, the message I delivered to the young men of the South I declare that the truth above all others to be worn unsullied and sacred in your hearts, to be surrendered to no force, sold for no price, compromised in no necessity, but cherished and defended at the covenant of your prosperity and the pledge of peace to your children is that the white race must dominate forever in the South because it is the white race and superior to that race by which the supremacy is threatened. It is a black issue that has come to this point and stand here. Here the air is pure and the light is clear and here honor and peace abide, juggling and evasion, deceiving Deceives not a man. Compromise and subservience have carried not a point. There is not a white man, north or south, who does not feel its stir in the gray matter of his brain and throb of his heart. Not a Negro who does not feel its power. It is not a sectional issue. It speaks in Ohio and in Georgia. It speaks 
wherever the Anglo-Saxon touches an alien race. Grady, in this speech, encouraged and approved lynching because the white man had to be protected from the scourge and denigration of slavery, of blacks. What he did was to poison the minds of white people and especially children, those alive and those born sense with prejudice. No one can ever know how much harm this speech has done to the minds of the South, both Negro and white. The following statistics came from Monroe Works of Tuskegee and his successor, who recorded all lynchings in the nation between 1882 and 1946. The churches approved of lynching and ministers of Christ God approved by never uttering a mumbling word in, condemn in condemnation of it. In a certain southern city, I know of one minister who abandoned his 11 o'clock service to participate in the mob. I recall cases where people from all around came to witness a lynching and women were given souvenirs of parts of the victim's body. Some women in the crowd requested a finger, an ear, an eye, a toe. This made, this, this made bold the fact that link, lynching was acceptable was in, ingrained, ingrained in the custom and practice of the time. Hilliard, Abner, and an address delivered about the South. Abram said this, where the Negro has thriven, it has invariably been under the influence and by the assistance of a stronger race. These warnings he has inevitably and visibly reverted toward the original type. Slavery, whatever its demerits, was not in, in, in its time the unmitigated evil it is fancied to have been. The time has passed. No power could compel the South to have it back. But to the Negro, it was salvation. It found him a savage. And in 200 years, given 7 million of this, of his race, is civilization. The only civilization it has had since the dawn of history. A prophet is a statesman, call of God to lead his people. No question is irrelevant. Questions such as, is it, is, it, is it expedient to do this? Is it wise that I do this? Will it be rejected? Re, will, will I be reelected if I proclaim God's word to them? Will I lose my physical life? None of these questions are ever raised by the true prophet, Jesus, Paul, Amos, Micah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel are proofs of this assertion. 
these are the reasons that I feel that, that the call must come to the black man and to many white Americans to join hands and unite to proclaim God's word in the second 200 years of our national existence. As our forefathers laid down the principles outlined in the Declaration of Independence and other American historical documents such as Lincoln's Gettysburg speech and the words on the Statue of Liberty. The call of God will come to the black man since he has known suffering, treading the wine press alone, battered and scarred for 243 years as a slave, another, and another 100 years of segregation, humiliation and denigration. The call to prophesy usually come to the poor and needy. The man fathers down. The learned, the wealthy and mighty those holding much money and power are hardly called. If they are called, they forsake family and kin and those who hold power and position cast their lot with those most in need. What can the black man do? He can thank God for the opportunity given him to do his work at this crucial hour in world's history. No, it is not prejudice to do this. It can be documented. It is inherent in the nature of ethnic groups to seek identity in its group. It is not prejudice for the Jew to stick his chest out when he knows that Jesus and Paul paved the way for, for Pentecost and out of these experiences the Christian church was born, thus giving us hope for the good life here on earth and hope for immortality beyond this veil of tears. Bible, Old and New Testaments provide the basis for our belief in both the Jewish and Christian faiths. Our belief in God as set forth in the Bible gives Jews and Christians the theological foundation for their faith. It is the basis for the theological, for the theology of Catholic, Protestants, and Jews. It must not be forgotten that Jesus was the son of a carpenter, that Paul, though a citizen of Rome, was from an enslaved people and was an ordinary worker, a tent maker by trade. Moses preferred to suffer with his people rather than to be the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
Joseph never denied his Jewish nature, even after his brothers had betrayed him and sold him into Egypt. Buddha, son of a carpenter, forsook his regal and warrior family to do his thing in his time. Legend has it that it had been prophesied that Buddha would become a great religious, a great conquering king. His father did not want him, his son, to be a religious leader, so he provided his son with every luxury and kept him away from unpleasant things. One day, while riding through the royal garden, the prince saw a weary, bent old man. This shocked him. And then Buddha saw that all men become old and all men die. As a result of this experience, he began to ponder what life was all about, observing that all races of men grow old, get sick, and die. This troubled Buddha, and he was depressed. He founded an order of monks and nuns. He believed God had led him to see that mankind is united. He died as the, as the enlightened one, teaching at 80 that mankind must be united. And I might add, in God, if he had followed the legend of, 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 of the times, he would have been just another Asiatic king. But now he is, according to H.G. Wells, one of the six great men of history. Now Buddha belongs to history because he identified himself with suffering man. Today, millions are saved by operation on the human body. The poetic Cicero, so impressed with the Roman Empire, is reputed to have said that the Roman Empire could never fall. Gibbon dates the fall as 476 AD, but that empire had been falling for centuries. Rome did not fall, though she, had, though she was not defeated on the battlefield. There is a time element in life when we pay for violating God's moral and spiritual laws. It could happen to the United States. Mussolini boasted that he would build, re, rebuild the, the greatness of the, of the Roman Empire. The greatness of the Roman Empire, not Mussolini, but a great writer, Cicero. But he did not build it. He lost the Second World War, and he and his mistress were killed trying to save their lives by escaping to Switzerland. The people who had worshipped him as God killed him and brought their bodies back and hanged them on the, the streets of Milan. I've seen the spot where their bodies were hanged and ridiculed by the people who once worshipped them as God. 
Hitler boasted that he would build a German empire that would last a thousand years. It didn't last ten. Hitler's body and that of his mistress were found dead by the bullets of their own hands. There is a wideness in God's mercy, like the wideness of the sea. But there's also a wideness in God's justice, God's wrath, like the wideness of the sea. Where and when can we begin? We can begin here at Duke today. The challenge of God is to the black man, although I know that the black man's hands are not clean either. Some blacks in the 1960s and the early 70s were going around telling Negroes to kill whitey while they made a habit of killing blacky. Nobody can be in a meaner and brutal to one another than black folks. I've been one a long time, longer than most of you under the sound of my voice. But I do believe that the black man is the remnant, God's chosen remnant. At this point in time, I say this because the white man has enslaved, robbed, and brutalized black people all across the world. I admire his skill in science and its application, but when it comes to dealing justly with the black man, I cannot trust the white man to initiate the kind of program I have in mind. So, we can begin at Duke, and today, black and white together, God's white remnant, but there has always been a small number among whites urging people to do justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Otherwise, the black man would have been liquidated a long time ago. He would not be alive today to tell the story. The Indian took up arms, and where are they? So in this bicentennial year, what can we do, white and black together here at Duke? We can pronounce the challenge of all America to do these four things. We just strive harder to lead the world to universal disarmament and see if we cannot build trust between the United States and Russia and other nations. Our scientists have met the Russian scientists in space and hooked up together for two days. But official United States and Russia do not trust each other. With United States and Russia trying to outdo each other, it will lead us downward 
to the end. Beginning in, in 1976, we should set a goal to end poverty in the United States and, in, and do it in 10 years. I believe it is cheaper and healthier to give people jobs rather than welfare. Crime is rampant in the United States. The federal government in cooperation with state government and religious bodies throughout the country should strive to reduce crime to a negligible size in three years. Instead of the federal government turning its back on the 1954 decision of the United States Supreme Court, the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the 1965 Voting Rights Act, we should reassess these programs and make them functional everywhere. These are a few of the priorities the nation should set for itself as we turn our faces to the future. Some such spiritual announcement should be made. This is the time for the churches of America, particularly the black church, to take the leadership in urging the government to step forth and lead in these areas. Finally, I, I really believe that a nation can decay without being beaten on the battlefield. A nation's survival depends in part on its will to justice. A nation that makes human values secondary will eventually fall. Despite its economic and military power, these are intangibles and cannot be dramatized on a blackboard, but history gives proof that things other than war can bring a nation down. For it is as true now as it was centuries ago, except the Lord buildeth the house, they labor in vain that build it, and except the Lord keepeth the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. I believe with all my heart, soul, and mind that eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, and the world hath not known what God will do for the world if we will let him. I hear God in the Negro spiritual center Sinner, sinner, give up your heart to God and we shall find a new hiding place. A man of leadership for world peace, job for all men and women who want to work and are able to work, a concern for diseased bodies whether in the United States, South Africa, South America, the Middle East, and Asia, that mantle of leadership has fallen to the United States. Hopefully that we will build a foundation as firm in, in the one our forefathers built 200 years ago. Let us build for the year 2175. We cannot fail our founders and we cannot fail our God. Pass it retrospect.
Only we can determine the future for the year 2175. No better place to begin than here at Duke. Black and white together, not at Chicago, not at Harvard, not at Yale, and not at Columbia, but at Duke. Proclaim it from every housetop. Tell it on the mountain, all over the, the hills and everywhere. God has called Duke students to start a movement that this nation under God will be as strong or stronger in the year 2176 than it is in 1976. May we accept the challenge at Duke.